Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us today as we worship and fellowship together. To find out more about Waterbrook, go to www.waterbrook.church. Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. Hebrews, chapter 13. I do want to thank Andy for preaching. I haven't, I haven't got to listen to his sermon yet, but I do listen each time I'm away, and I'm blessed by his teaching and preaching, so thankful for that. Let me uh, say hi to Grace and welcome her um, home from school. Welcome, honey. <laughs> good to have you uh, home from school, and I trust that's going well for you. It'd be good to catch up. That's great. Um, let me also uh, extend an invitation. In November for the ladies, um, we are having Phyllis uh, Masters come, and she'll be here on a Saturday. Is it November 2nd? Is that the date? And uh, if you know any of Phyllis's story, just the remarkable story of their ministry in um, Papua New Guinea, is that where it was? Irija, Irian Jaya, 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 Irian Jaya, yeah, <laughs> get it out. But um, just uh, her husband was martyred um, as a missionary there, and uh, her story of the advancement of the gospel there even through the suffering of her husband. So she's going to be here in person for the ladies on Saturday, November 2nd, and then we'll hear a little bit, I hope, on Sunday from her as well. But that's a good opportunity for the ladies to be together and to hear her remarkable testimony. So I just want to extend a warm welcome out to the ladies there. Let's look at um, uh, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4. And uh, this... This has got great practical implications. You know, one of the things you have to be mindful of as a pastor, in fact, I remember reading not too long ago a Spurgeon sermon, and a Spurgeon was preaching his way through the sermon. I got down to one point, I think it was near the end of the sermon where he got to the application, and he said to the people, today was a hard, foggy day to push our way through the text, and it was hard, it was hard to hear and it was hard to preach. And I was trying to picture what that day must have been like for Spurgeon of all the preachers, because some days there's days where everybody's sluggish, it's gray outside, you feel gray inside because it's gray outside, and you need the Holy Spirit to kind of push you along through it. And so even today, you know, sometimes the building gets a little gray and so on, and so it's okay to be mellow, but let's at least listen to the Holy Spirit, because this topic of marriage in verse 4 has incredible relevance, not only for us personally, but also for the mission of the church in this day and age. And so we're going to think through this text together. There's a lot more thinking that could come out of it, but I wanted to spend a little bit of time reflecting on this verse. So let's look at verse 4 of Hebrews chapter 13. Um, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Isn't that a weighty text, even as you get to the end of that passage? It's a weighty text, but it's a very practical and important text for us to work our way through. I'm just going to backtrack a little bit and remind you why we're here in this verse. Um, what you need to remember is that this is the persecuted church it's written to. And so these are Christians who have suffered for the sake of the gospel. And because they've suffered for the sake of the gospel, they've sort of retracted back in their faith, back from a public exposure to the dangers of the gospel. So you might want to picture some places around the world where it's ex extraordinarily difficult to be a Christian. Or you can go back into this time framework and think of what it must have been like under Nero. And so as these people started to be unpublic or less public about their faith, the writer was writing them to get their eyes on Jesus and to keep in line the finish line of their faith, especially in Hebrews 11, he kind of unfolds all these people who had this great and glorious hope that allowed, for example, Moses to leave the, the pleasures of Egypt to go and suffer amongst the people of Israel in the wilderness. That's what he was able to do. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob leaving their, Abraham leaving his homeland, going out not knowing where he was going. And it culminates at the end of chapter 11 with a list of people who suffered enormously for the sake of the kingdom of God, not ever realizing the fullness of it, all doing it so that you and I here today, that's why the Phyllis Masters example ties in, that there are so many people who have paid the price so that we can freely worship today. 
And so when we find ourselves in our lives not being too open and public about our faith, we often have to stop and kind of think about the fact that sometimes our timidity is over what? Somebody gives us a, a look, a quizzical look, they think we're odd, and uh, they, they, they think that you know somehow we're outside of the norm of the culture, that we're just a bunch of Jesus freaks out there. I mean, we don't suffer a whole lot. I think that may be coming. I think there's some big changes down the line for America in light of the text and some of the things that we're studying. If you hear any of the political campaigns that are going on right now, there's some direct shots at evangelical Bible-believing Christians and their future in America, and you wouldn't have thought that a generation ago, but we see the shift. And so one of the things I want to say to you as we come to this text of Scripture, I want to anchor it in the context of Hebrews 13, is that we need to consider what we believe about marriage and sexuality. We need to consider what our convictions are without kind of this idea in our minds that we need to kind of rail against the culture because that tends to be the impulse of evangelical Christians sometimes in America and in the West Uh, we look at the culture we see culture capitulating to immorality and we think in our heads we need to fight for our Christian principles in America and I'm not saying we shouldn't have Christian principles but what you and I have to remember is that These are exceptional times when a culture has actually held the Christian principles. And when this letter is written in Hebrews chapter 13, it was at a time when the sexual mores of the Roman Empire couldn't be farther from what's being taught here. So the danger for you and me is we read Hebrews 13.4 and it sounds normal to us. But in their culture, it was radical. In their culture, it would have actually elicited persecution. We sometimes think what we believe about marriage, what we believe about the family, what we believe about sexual fidelity and purity, what we believe will get us in trouble, it would have got them in trouble. It did bring them persecution. So don't read it like a North American uh, Christian who thinks, oh yeah, this is normal. This is written to people. He's, He's... projecting them out because of the gospel into the culture and allowing them to think that don't be afraid of what's going on around you. You are salt and light. And so don't retract, but he starts in verse 1, let your love for the brethren continue, right? Then he says hospitality, expand to love strangers, even though loving strangers puts you at risk. And then as you look at verse 3, he says, remember those who are suffering, Pray over them, identify them with them, share in them, be conscious, be, be conscious in your minds, not to be kind of self-absorbed, because that's, isn't that what happens when we start hurting? We pull back into our own little cocoon, we pull back into our little woe is me shelter, and we forget that there are those who we are connected to, who are paying the price for the gospel, who are making sacrifices for the kingdom of God, and so he's calling us out. And now he comes in and he talks to them. This may sound like, if you're reading through this, does it sound to you, go, wow, that's a big shift. It's almost like you're reading the book of Proverbs. Sometimes when you're reading through Proverbs, it's like, oh, here's a principle. Oh, here's another principle. Oh, here's another principle. And you're wondering if there's any flow or a connection between. There is a flow. He's calling them to courageous Christianity. So I want to read you a little bit. Uh, Tim Challies did a review uh, a couple of years ago on... um, Matthew Ruger's book, Sexual Morality in a Christless Society. And what Matthew Ruger did was he took a look at um, sexual mores, principles, in the Roman culture at the time of the New Testament. And what he showed was that the Rome's uh, sexual morale, mores were, couldn't be more different from the Christian principles that were being taught. And Christianity is radical. That's, that's, can I at least put it to you this way? That Christian moral marriage sexual principles are radical in the culture. And we need to think that way, but not because we want to be radical, but because it's at that point we are available to rescue the brokenhearted. Because the cultural sin and abandonment of God's design will leave a thousand broken refugees, a million. Our culture, our world, reels 
from sexual promiscuity and the breakdown of the family. It's, there's brokenness everywhere. And the church isn't to compromise its principles, it's to hold firm to its principles so that we might show the grace of the gospel that rescued us. That's my belief about this, that underneath all of what's going on around us is brokenness because of sin. And so this call is for us to hold on to these things because when people come, or to, or to pursue these things for the first time, because when people follow what the world says, they're ravaged by sin and Satan. Our young people are ravaged. Our adults, we've got a generation from the hippie movement in the 60s who are now recovering or not recovering because of their capitulation to independence from any sort of moral principles that have been put upon them from above. So listen to what um, was, this is the description of Rome. I'm a, I actually have to edit it. Um, so that it's appropriate for this morning. But Rome's sexual climate is a model of utopia, of the utopia for which today's sexual progressives are striving. So this is Matthew Ruger describing what it was like at this time in Rome. It was hardly utopian. In the Roman mind, man was the conqueror who dominated on the battlefield as well as at home. Um, society looked down on him only if he appeared weak. So respectable men were allowed to have sexual relations with just about anyone, provided that they were aggressors rather than the receivers of these activities. And then uh, Chalice talks about what it was like as he makes his way through this book. But rape was widespread and accepted, provided a man raped someone from a lower status. So you can imagine what it was like in the culture if you were a woman or if you were someone without status in Roman culture. In so many ways, it was abhorrent. And one of the most prominent things was the domination of the weak. Now, I'm, I'm not even going to read everything that I've got down here, but one of the things that he brings out really clearly is that there was a great deal of pedophilia going on at this time, which was acceptable males with younger males. So I, I only say that this morning, and I limit what I say, to put to you that when you read Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, this is not a bunch of Christians trying to recover a Christian morality in their age. This is Christians being called to be something radically different in an, era, in an age where there was domination, manipulation, you know, the, the, without a Me Too movement rescuing women from being oppressed in the culture and being manipulated. We live in that culture, don't we? I mean, it may not be there yet, but we live in a culture where there are all kinds of people who have been violated, who've been wounded. I mean, we just have to, I just assume, I've I, just got to be careful, I pastored long enough, I just assume that half of the women in this building right now have been sexually abused. Statistically, you just have to start there. You have to begin in the culture with the assumption that the vast majority of teenage men are addicted or involved with pornography. That's the culture in which we live. In a culture that says it's trying to liberate people from sexual manipulation and abuse. That the vast majority of pornography that goes out into the world comes out of America, and the vast majority of pornography in America comes out of Los Angeles, in the film industry. I mean, that's all statistical information. Then you just look around, you go, to, go to the rest of the world and some of the cultures. Go to Thailand with Mary Ann's family, and they, they text what their, their English as a second language class looks like, the young men that are coming in, commonly dressed as young women wanting to learn English, sitting in their class. This is not just localized. This isn't just now. This has either been hidden and suppressed or public and expressed all the way through history, and it's ravaged families. And so here's what I want you to think about when we come to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. When Christians live out godly marriages and pure lives, it's so that people might be rescued from the satanic woundedness and brokenness and enslavement and, and lack of safety that is ravaged people everywhere. I think this is the ravaging thing that Satan does. 
This is the thing Satan does to make you feel worthless, to make you feel loveless, to make you feel hopeless. And so I say all of that to say, read Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, in a, in a missional way. The church needs to take this seriously so that we might minister to the brokenhearted. Because this is who we are. This is who we are. And this is who we are called to serve. So marriage is not a man-made institution. It's a God-designed and intentionally created plan to illustrate, communicate, and propagate the gospel to the ends of the earth. This is mercy. We must fight to elevate marriage to the place in our hearts and minds that it is in God's purpose and plans. Marriage is under brutal attack because it's such a powerful place in God's plan for the advancement of the gospel. You understand that? God wants pastors to fall into sin. Right? Because God wants the gospel not to have its effect in the pastor's family. Right? The enemy. I said the wrong way. I misspoke. Thanks for correcting me. God wants us to be rescued. The enemy doesn't want the gospel to advance. Marriage is under brutal attack because if we're all wounded and retracting, we can't be going forward in the freedom of the gospel and loving. This, this is so needed, so necessary, and yet at one level, isn't it so obvious? And yet you get sold that... This is the opposite of freedom, that this is the opposite of grace, that we're narrow-minded oppressors. And you know what? You've got to get over it because we may suffer for this, but we've got to fight for this in our private lives because when, when people live in their so-called freedom, they'll come out absolutely violated by the evil one. So let me walk through this text and show you in this text what it's telling us that we must do in our view of marriage and our view of marital fidelity and sexual purity. So this is what, if you love Christ and want to advance his kingdom for the joy of all peoples, you must radically reshape how you view and treat marriage. This has to happen. I, let me just stop again and make a pastoral comment. I don't want to speak carelessly this morning. And I say that because in America, a high number of church-going, Jesus-loving people have been wounded and broken and gone a different way and experienced the pain and are now sitting in the pews. So I hope it resonates as true with you, but if I say it in too strong a way, do not take this in any way as a personal attack or my, you know, just kind of a careless judgmentalism. Um, I think the more we preach about this and the more we model it, the more we're going to have to deal with it. And so just please take it as grace. And I hope that you can hear in your heart, and this is what I'm hoping, that what God does by the power of the Spirit is birth within us a vision of marriage that is missional and not just legalistic, that is purposeful and not just self-righteous. I, don't, I have no desire to stand in front of the world and say we got a better way than you in order to say we got a better way than you. I believe the world needs Jesus and that God in his grace and his love has designed this. So let's just walk through and I'll show you some of the things in this text. We'll go to the next slide here, Pat. Just, marriage must be seen. Here's the first thing. Look at verse, chapter 13, verse 4. What, is, what does he say must happen in verse 4? Let marriage be what? Held in honor by who? All. So this is a statement to teenagers. Teenagers, you need to have a view of marriage where you honor it. That the word for honor here is uh, timios, which in the Greek is the word precious, like precious stones or precious blood. So... In uh, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, Be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. That's the word that's used here. Marriage, this is like the princess bride, marriage is precious. <laughs> right? We, we chuckle about that, but in the Bible, it needs to be truly precious. 1 Peter 1.18, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. See the word that's used here? We need 
to see. If you're a young person and people say, I don't need to get married. I don't need a, what do people say? It's just a piece of paper. It, it's not just a piece of paper. It's not a throwaway thing. It's not a throwaway thing because people aren't throwaway things. Life isn't momentary. And children and families aren't throwaway things. Everyone, if you're single and you don't feel called to marriage, you need to look at marriage and think, but that in the purpose of God has a special plan. And it needs to be held up and honored. No matter how it gets dissed in the culture. I need to hold marriage high, precious, valuable. If it's been a bad experience for you, isn't it good that God has a right way rather than a wrong way? Isn't it good that God defines it rather than culture defines it? There is a call here for all of us to have a high view. So I, that's what I put there. The, the word is elevate. Elevate. Marriage must be seen as sacred and holy in the sight of God. Underesteeming marriage is exactly what the enemy wants. He wants you to throw away marriage because he wants people to be continually manipulated and injured under the lie of the enemy. Christ transforms our view of marriage, whether we are married or not, because we see it as instrumentally see it as instrumental, sorry, in displaying and advancing the message of the gospel in a world where marriages, families, women, children, and men have been shattered by the dishonoring of marriage. And again, I, when I was in university, I worked in a, a, a special high school for kids who couldn't fit into the high school. It's called the ARMS program. And that was you know, I had come from a Christian family and been raised with two parents. 19 out of the 20 kids in my class came from broken families. And as I thought about that and as I witnessed this, it made my heart ache. I realized that I was the exception, not the norm in that culture. And it wasn't my family was perfect. My family struggled, like every family struggles in its relationships, but there was something in the design of God's faithfulness and covenant that was modeled for me that they didn't have even a perspective. And the consequences for them educationally and relationally, for these kids in particular, was enormously difficult. How can you not care about these things? Because you're caring about people. So let's go to the next one. Here's three things I want to tell you this morning that I hope will help you elevate, hold high marriage. Number one, a marriage is foundationally good. That's how the Bible begins, right? I'm going to take your Bible and go to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, actually. Um, but do you remember, in, look at Genesis chapter 1 when God creates Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says, God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So he elevates humanity above all creation. We're made in God's image. And he gives us dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all earth and over every creeping thing that creeps here. So God, verse 27, chapter 1, created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, you, I could do a whole sermon on the worth of men and women, the equality of men and women, the dignity of men and women, the ability of men and women to respond in a way that honors God. You, you, we are called by this text to honor men men and women, right? Humanity has a special place. It's the pinnacle of God's creation. In fact, I want you to look where it says, verse 31, after God established them as gave them dominion over all things, what does it say in verse 31? As opposed to every other day, God saw everything that he made, and at the end of that day, he said it was very good. As opposed to good, it was very good. Now, if you go down to verse chapter, sorry, in chapter 2, verse 18, it's the first time that God says something's not good. Every day, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. Adam and Eve were created, it was very good. And you get to chapter 2, verse 18, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him, verse 18 of chapter 2. Now, out of the ground, 
the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought to them to, to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into what? A woman. And brought her to the man. Not another man, not another creature, but a uniquely formed, fitting woman. And, and the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, verse 24, this is the definition of marriage. A man shall what? Leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So that's the foundation of marriage. That's the beginning of marriage. What is marriage? It's a creation of God, where he fits a man and a woman together so that they might accomplish together the dominion over all things that God has given to them. That's the design. Now, what I want to say is that when you read it, you realize that marriage is that piece of the puzzle that God puts together that was lacking in the original creation. It was not good. It's very good, but it wasn't good until this was in place. So marriage is fundamentally good because it's a creation of God. That's where we start as Christians. Marriage is good. doesn't matter what the culture says. Marriage is good. And the reason why I put that there is it, I put the word clarity we need this kind of clarity in our culture. Because in our culture, there is all kinds of confusion about what it means to be human, about what our gender and sexuality is, about male and female. This is, a, you're going to get it, the opposite of this in the news, you're going to get it in the political campaigns, you're going to get it in the public schools, you're going to get it all around you, that it is not good and it is not of God. My dear friends, we've got to have clarity, and here's why you need clarity. We need clarity so that we might help those who come out of the catastrophe of denying this. Not so that we're self-righteous. So that we might minister. For example, let me give you a little illustration on sexuality. You see the differences here. Paul McHugh is an MD, a doctor, at, uh, who is the University Distinguished Service Professor of Psychiatry at Johns Hopkins Medical School. So he's not at a flyaway school. And he's writing in the journal Public Discourse on the current issue of gender dysphoria. So it's something we all face. We're all facing this now. As he writes on the subject of gender dysphoria, where, you know, Johns Hopkins University has been involved in actual sex transformation surgery. has been part of that process of helping people change their gender. This is how he describes what they're discovering after 40 years of research in this area. Gender dysphoria belongs in the family of similarly disordered assumptions about the body, such as anorexia nervosa and body dysphoric disorder. Now I say that, so you know, this is not Christian, you know, conservative fundamentalism. This is 40 years of study at John Hopkins, Johns Hopkins University by a lead professor in the area of psychiatry. Its treatment should not be directed at the body as with surgery and hormones any more than one treats obesity-fearing anorexic patients with liposuction. The treatment should strive to correct the false problematic nature of the assumption and to resolve the psychosocial conflicts provoking it. Let me just stop say, if that all just flew over your head, let me just tell you what he's saying. What he's saying here in this passage, in this article in Public Discord, what, what this professor of psychiatry is saying is they've been studying it for 40 years and they do not agree with the common cultural means of addressing the problem, the common one. This is not us. 
saying we disagree and we don't have any... These are that, the people outside of the Christian community arguing that they don't know how to handle it. They are providing solutions and they disagree with one another. What's going to happen to a culture with that lack of clarity, with that kind of confusion, with the surgeries and the undoing of the surgeries, the depression and the anxieties? You know what's going to happen? God willing that we're going to be able to come along and say there's hope and there is a way and to speak with clarity. We need to speak clearly, not arrogantly. We need to speak clearly because there is so much confusion and the devil sows confusion. And he sows confusion because he is a liar, Jesus said from the beginning, and a murderer. He doesn't care what happens to your kids. He doesn't care what happens to our culture. So that's the first thing. We need clarity. Secondly, permanency. Go to Matthew chapter 19. So the first thing I want you to see about marriage from the Bible and why we need to honor it is because it is created by God and God said it was good. So, so I'm going to reiterate that to you today quickly and say to you, you have to believe with all your heart that God's design for marriage, one man, one woman, for life, before God, is a good thing. Because it's a God thing. Because you're going to be told it's not. It's good. It's from God. And God intended it out of love for good. Secondly, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 3, the Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by saying, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, just so you know, this was not a mere theoretical let's trick Jesus question. It was a divine and con- divide and conquer strategy. This was actually an issue in the culture. There were two rabbinic schools at the time, a conservative and a liberal rabbinic school. A couple of different representatives from that school, you can find different names. One is the Rabbi Hillel School of Thought, which was well known established by Hot, and that was the liberal school of thought. And although they had some parameters that protected people's ability to divorce their wives and leave their marriages, there was basically a kind of an open season. The, the rule was you didn't have to write your reason why. If your wife burnt the toast, you could divorce her under Rabbi Hillel's. That was a freedom given to you under the Mosaic Law. That was the interpretation under Rabbi um, Gamaliel, Gamaliel, sorry, it was a more conservative school of thought, which is you cannot divorce your wife hardly under any circumstance. There were some circumstances, but it was incredibly narrow. And so what was happening, of course, was that there was in the culture a climate that, a, a, a thinking amongst men that women were just, some of them, that women were just chattel to be disposed of. This is problematic in multiple cultures. And the woundedness that comes because of these beliefs that marriage is disposable and women are usable happens still today. I mean, just go to Saudi Arabia. But you go to many places in the world. Watch a baby being born in India in some places. And you realize that this is not, in Jesus' mind, a theoretical question. This is a gospel God-honoring, crucial question. So look at the answer Jesus gives in verse 4. Have you not read that he who created from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and what? Hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh so that they are no longer two but one. What therefore, this is the key line, God has joined together, let not man separate. Let me just pull back and say this about what Jesus is saying. The first principle we saw is that marriage is created by God and therefore is good. Second thing in this text is that marriage is established by God and is a covenant and therefore binding. So when two people come together and say, well, when we got married, we didn't know what we were doing, the Christian stops and says, well, that's not the primary condition that you need to consider. The question isn't what were you doing. The question is what was God doing? 
right? That's what he's saying in this text. And so what he's saying is, not only is it God's good creation, it's God's holy covenant. That God holds us to our vows even when we don't hold us to our vows. Now friends, I know some of you have been through the brokenness of this. I hope you know I love you. But I want to be clear because the culture is not clear. And I know that you know the brokenness of this. And so if you've been through the brokenness of this, I know you're not sitting here thinking God's way is wrong. You're just saying, I just wish that I had gone a different way, experienced a different thing, right? This is what we hold up as Christians in the culture. We hold up and say that God is at every promise a man makes to a woman, and we argue from our, the soul of our hearts. So, you know, when Marianne and I got married, I always make her nervous because I didn't, I didn't ask permission here. Can I, I'll, I'll tell you the illustration, then you can tell me whether or not I have permission to do it, Okay. <laughs> When we got married, my number one condition in marrying her was whether or not I believed she was a covenant keeper. I didn't know. I mean, I know me. I didn't know whether or not she'd like me. (laughs) Over the long haul, I didn't know whether or not, you know, what life would look like. But what I wanted to know was, did she believe when she said, I do, that she wasn't saying, I do to me. She was saying, I do to Jesus. Before God, And if she was speaking to Jesus before God, then whatever come, we would work it through in the grace that Jesus provides. Right? And so that's what we have to see, that there is. Women are not disposable. You can't just take a person and say, ah, it didn't work for me. I'm not satisfied with this relationship. My dear friends, in the sight of God, he holds us accountable for how we treat our spouses. It is covenantal in the sight of God. That elevates it, doesn't that? That's what it means to hold marriage in honor. It is creation of God, but it is a covenant with God. Very different than our culture And that's why our culture is bleeding and broken. Thirdly, Ephesians 5, 21 to 22. This is a systematic theology class on marriage. And you're getting the Reader's Digest version. But let me take you to Ephesians chapter 5 because I think this is kind of the pinnacle in what the Bible teaches is that marriage is not only um, a good creation, God's creation. It's not only God's covenant, but it is radically redemptive. It's uniquely sacred because God binds us together and it is radically redemptive. It is in marriage that we model, we breathe out, we speak out, we teach out God's love for the church in Jesus Christ. We preach the gospel in our families to our kids by how we love our spouses. So it's radically redemptive. Listen to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's a call to all Christians. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his, his body, and is himself its savior. Now before I define what that means, and before you get the cultural um, response, you know, the radical, I'm, you know, no man is going to be head over me. Let me just stop and say, remember Christ is the model in the means. Secondly, when you think about this, remember what we've already studied that before God, God takes very seriously how a husband honors his vows before his wife. It should cause you to tremble. It's in that biblical context that you need to think through this. Now, verse 24, as church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives how? As Christ loved the church and did what? Give himself up for her. Why? So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and blameless. So as you look, work your way through this text and you say, what is this relationship in marriage to be looking like? It's meant to be looking like Jesus saving his church. Not the world seducing women. Tossing them away treating them brutally. It's the opposite. It is dying to yourself to present her to Jesus. My goal 
in ministry and in life is to take my wife and to deliver her to Jesus in better shape than when I got her, spiritually speaking. That's a heavy calling. Because I'm quite capable of doing the opposite. To wearing her down, wearing her out, discouraging her. I've got to fight me in order that I might be like Jesus. You understand that's what's going on in marriage? So when you think missionally about the church's call and what we're calling, called to do, we are to hold up, we're to honor the family, we're to honor marriage as, as a creation of God, as a sacred covenant before God, and as a holy missional calling to broken and bleeding people that what it's supposed to look like is Jesus dying on the cross. And the church loving Jesus. Isn't that a good picture? Can you get a better picture of what marriage should look like? So Paul Tripp talks about this all the time. I'll give give you the next quote here. Can you go to the next one there, Pat? I can see the little arrow moving. There it is. Um, When your heart rests in the amazing wisdom of the choices of a powerful creator, you have given yourself reason to continue. When your heart celebrates the myriad of careful choices that were made to bring your, he's talking about marriage here, to bring your stories together, you have given yourself reason to continue. So you realize the creator is sovereign and he brought you together with all the differences you have and all the difficulties you face. When your heart is filled with gratitude for the amazing grace that you've both been given and are being given, you have reason to continue. Aren't you glad that Jesus forgives husbands? Aren't you glad that Jesus forgives and died for wives in their struggle? You're not alone. Your creating, ruling, transforming Lord is still with you. He's brought your stories together and placed them smack dab in the middle of his redemptive story. The story of our marriage is that Christ saves sinners. Isn't that the story of marriage? Not that we're better than anyone. We're broken. And we're bleeding. As long as he's creator, as long as he's sovereign, as long as he's the savior, you have reason to get up in the morning and love one another even though you aren't yet what he created you to be. Isn't that good news? Good news is that you get up in the morning and you're married and you think, I don't have what it takes, but Jesus has never given up on me yet. He's not going to abandon and forsaken us yet. He will not do that. So let me take you through the, let's elevate. I'm going to quickly give you the next two consecrate notice what he says in verse back in hebrews chapter 13 and i say this to everyone he says let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled so let me just give you two thoughts on what that means number one is this is a call for sexual purity and sexual fidelity so if you're not married you still need to honor the marriage bed Sex is for married couples. Only. Within the covenant of marriage. It's not for your eyes. It's not for your affections. It's not for your heart. The clarity we have about the holiness of marriage and the bond of marriage, the two shall become one flesh, right? That's God's design. That's God's covenant. And we are to guard that. That's why. That's why... You don't give your kid a smartphone, you give them a flip phone. If you give them a phone at all, right? That's why you protect your eyes, you protect your heart. Why? Because there's something very sacred and holy before God about marriage, and we are to consecrate ourselves. The marriage bed is to be kept pure. We're to fight for that, we're to pray for that, we're to pursue that, because in the culture, it's toxic, it's poison, it's saturating, it's behind sex trafficking. It's not a time when you, I I was standing in the airport in Phoenix on Friday, and a friend of mine just happened to appear who lives in the neighborhood over here and we saw each other and he was just coming out of Vegas I, you know those of you who fly through Vegas you want to vomit but it's almost like anywhere you go you see girls walking by and going well, why are they traveling on where are they going are they okay right that's the culture friends people matter to God far more than we ever imagined they're precious in his sight And so we need to consecrate ourselves in terms of sexual purity. It's not about us. You know, if you could only stop and realize that the person you're lusting after 
has probably been sexually abused. Are you next in line? That person who's partying and doing that whole scene amongst your college friends and your peers, do you realize that so many of them are going to be in counseling for a long period of time because they're brokenness, broken over the abuse? I mean, do we, do we want to go in that route or do we want to hold up the value and dignity and beauty and worth of one another with our eyes and with our thinking? That's why we pray, God help us. God help us, let's consecrate. Let's the marriage bed be undefiled. And that's actual, practical, theoretical, mental, always. Is that helpful? So we pray over that and plead with that and help one another with that. And men challenge each other and talk to each other about that. So, so I have, a, I have a, a Christian elderly man I meet with, try to meet with every month or Every other month, every six weeks, I sit down, and the first thing he asks me, okay, Kevin, how's the state of your soul? You've got to have somebody that's asking you the questions, pressing into your life, somebody you feel safe with to say if you're struggling or not, confess to and work your way out of it. That's what we need, right? To help each other, to be consecrated, let me go to the next one just for the sake of time. Motivate. Here's the key text I want to get to in this text. Look at the end of verse 4. He says, Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Every single person will stand before God one day. And our pursuit of holiness in marriage and dignity in marriage and honor in marriage is because we look around us and realize these are not temporary souls. These are people who will stand before God. I am someone who will stand before God. And the Bible says it over and over again. Listen to Galatians 5, 19 to 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strifes, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, division, envy, drunkenness, orgeries, and things like this, I tell you, I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. We are not trying to win America back. We're trying to advance the eternal kingdom of Christ. Kingdoms come and kingdoms go, but we will all stand before the Lord. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In Paul's culture, to write that would put him in jail. It would put him against culture. But you see, why does he write it? It's true. It's because he trembles. We are eternal souls. Laughing at sex, trivializing it and dishonoring it is leaving people captivated and enslaved. Do you, do you know in the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, the enemies of Israel called Balaam Remember the story of Balaam and his donkey? They called Balaam and said, Balaam, will you curse Israel? <laughs> they saw him coming up against Midian. Will you curse Israel? And he said, I can't do anything that God won't allow me to do. And so every time he goes out to meet them, what does he do? He blesses them. And he goes, we paid you good money to curse them. And then we find out later that right after that comes to an end, there's this scene where the Midianite women come in, and it's like a public drunken orgy it seems like, where they come in and God turns and judges them. Israel, because they're interacting with the Midianite women. When you get a little few chapters later, God sends judgment against the Midianite kings, but in the middle of that, it says, and God told them to kill Balaam. 
because of the incident at, it was called Peor, was the location. And then you realize, oh, this is what Balaam did. Balaam said, I can't get God to curse his own people, but I can show you how to get God to kill his own people. Let them use, use your women to get them to turn to Baal instead of God. And God moved and killed his own people. Not all of them. Thank goodness Phineas stood up and others stood up and intervened. Thank God we have a Phineas who didn't come and kill us but took the sword on our behalf. Isn't that great news? That Jesus stepped up and stopped the wrath of God and died on the cross in the place for our sins and intervened and all of that. My dear friends, what's going on here is that sin leads to death. What's our memory verse for this week? Romans 6, 23. Anybody know it? You should know it. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is the eternal life through Christ Jesus, right? Our Lord. That's our memory verse this week. Isn't that the great news of the gospel? That our only hope is in Jesus Christ. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is Eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So I'm reading this book, one of the books I picked up this week. I'm reading through real quick. Um, Tom Mercer's book, 8 to 15. Let me read you the introduction. He's encouraging people. Basically he's saying every Christian has 8 to 15 people that are within their oikos that they should be praying for and sharing the gospel with. That's the gist of the book. But he introduces the early part of the book by saying this. Sin kills everything it touches. Every time someone makes a bad decision and lets sin creep in, something dies. Sometimes the death is obscure, like when an opportunity to do something really significant slowly wilts away. Sometimes it's more noticeable, like when a promising relationship slowly fades away. Sometimes it's downright tragic, like when someone loses hope, buys a handgun, and a human life is thrown away. Whether you like it or not, we were born behind enemy lines. Whether you know it or not, we live in a war zone. The incarnation was essentially a military invasion and resolutely entrenched behind the gates of Fort Hades, Satan made his position clear. He would not give up willingly. The war ended on a very difficult but very good Friday. It may have seemed to onlookers as if Jesus was just hanging there on a cruel cross, forgotten and alone, but that's only the way it seemed. In reality, he was completing the mission he had come to fulfill, slowly prying apart the talons of the enemy, dismantling the grip Satan had on our dead hearts and forcing him to sign his unconditional surrender. The overwhelming force of the resurrection sealed the enemy's fate, and within a matter of days, the POWs began coming home. Does it bother you, he writes, that some of your friends may be still fighting a war they cannot win? Your friends are trying to get free of their sin, trying to heal their relationships. Dear friends, the, the call to honor marriage, to keep the marriage bed pure, is because the war is over the souls of men and women. And we hold it high so that people will feel that there's a place to come, a Christ to come to, hope for the broken and the wounded. May Waterbrook be filled with broken people who come to the refuge of Christ and find forgiveness and healing grace. Isn't that our prayer? Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to find out more about Waterbrook Christian Church located in Victoria, Minnesota, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed day.